Thank you, Dr. Salazar and Dr. Livingston. And thank you all for coming out to this mandatory lecture on child, uh, child abuse and on sexual abuse. So I was joking with Nina that mandatory lectures generally mean boring. So I'm hoping that this isn't that. Um, and I've worked hard to try to put together a talk for you that's going to have some practical applications and things that you can take with you today and apply them today or tomorrow in your practice. So before I launch into the topics that we're gonna cover today, I wanted to just set the stage with a few case examples. So we'll start with Stephanie. So Stephanie's four, she lives with her mother. She visits with her father every other weekend and one evening per week. One time she comes back and mother notices that her genital area is red. And mother says, Stephanie, who touched you? Because mother's concerned about sexual abuse. The child says, dad. And mom's also worried about sexual abuse because Stephanie's been touching herself. So mother calls the police, calls and DCF becomes involved. And she conveniently tells you this at the four-year well-child visit in your office. Let's switch now to Juan and Edward. So Juan is 14, and at a family party, he's found in the bedroom of Edward, his seven-year-old cousin. Edward says that Juan was asking him to pull down his pants and to touch his penis. And when confronted by the family, Juan says that he was sexually abused by his mother's brother, so his uncle when he was 10 to 13 years, until that uncle recently moved across the country. The family mulls this over for a couple days and then calls the primary care, doctor, the care doctor's office three days after the party and was told by the office staff to bring both the boys to the emergency room because their office doesn't do sexual abuse. And finally, Kaylee, an eight-year-old who reported to her mother ongoing sexual abuse by mother's boyfriend. Mom calls you, her primary care physician, after hours to talk about what to do next. Mother is frantic. She's calling you at that time of day because her boyfriend lives in the home, but he's currently at work, and she's calling you to know what to do. So these cases we're going to come back to at the end of today to help process some of this information and give some ideas of next steps. Hopefully, at least one of these cases may have resonated with you about something you've heard about or seen in your office or in the emergency department. So there's challenging questions that rise up from these. Did Stephanie make a disclosure, that four-year-old? Was that a disclosure of sexual abuse? And what should you do differently in your four-year-old, your four-year well-child visit? Did Juan and Edward need to go to the emergency room? But now that they're there, what do they need? What kind of medical evaluation needs to happen? And then what are the medical and safety concerns for Kaylee? So marinate on those a little bit until we get to the end of the talk and we'll come back to those. Before we, I launch into, again, just telling you the topics we're going to cover today, I just wanted to start with a couple definitions because the terms sexual abuse and sexual assault are commonly used interchangeably, but they are different and they have different medical um, needs. So for the purposes of just clarity, I wanted to let you know that sexual abuse is, of a child is sexual acts by an adult in the family or adult in a caregiving role, like a coach, or a Girl Scout leader, a Boy Scout leader, or by older children in the family. The type of acts that happen are often repeated. They're often nonviolent. They're progressive. So meaning it may start with touching and then progress each time it happens to potentially full penetrating type of sexual acts. These types of disclosures from the children come late because they start often when the child is young and may not recognize what's going on. And remember that these are trusted adults, adults that are trusted by the child and trusted by the family. So the child may not recognize the severity or the significance of what's happening until it's gone on for several years. And then they may not know how to stop it or what to say. Sexual assault is defined as sexual acts by strangers or can be same-aged peers. So sexual assault is what is more commonly called rape, and that is like the B-rate movie, man jumps out of bushes type of concept. Doesn't always have to be that type of arrangement, but it is often acute. It is a, a one-time event. It may involve violence, and there would be more chances for the victim to be injured and to have medical injuries to see. And, and those disclosures from the victims are generally rapid. It doesn't necessarily mean that they disclose the moment that they get to safety, but it, as opposed to days, months, or years for sexual abuse of children, sexual assault victims generally report it to someone in the first 
couple days to weeks after it occurs. These do have overlap, but there are, there's just differences in how they need to be treated medically, and we're going to cover that today. But today, generally, we're going to focus on sexual abuse of children. So we're tendly talking about younger children with some type of sexual abuse happening to them in their family arrangement. So we're going to step back and discuss why a concern about sexual abuse may arise in a child, and then walk through a practical approach to a patient about whom a concern of sexual abuse has been raised. We are going to touch on the review and, and sorry, we're going to touch on and review the purpose and logistics of a forensic evidence collection kit, which is a rape kit. We're going to go over how to do an external GU exam of a young child focusing on females. And then we're going to just discuss briefly the roles of this, the suspected child abuse and neglect, the SCAN team, DCF, and police in sexual abuse evaluations. And then we'll return to our case examples. So generally, when there's a concern about sexual abuse in a child, it generally falls into a couple categories. There's some type of a reason that a parent or a caregiver is worried. And that can be because the child has some type of behavior that's making the, child, the parent worried. Or the child has said something that's making the child worried. Or they have something on their body that looks funny or is making the parent worried that sexual abuse has happened. Those similar those categories are similar for medical providers, although we expand into certain types of infections or symptoms that could make us concerned about sexual abuse, such as vaginal discharge or some other type of infection that may be sexually transmitted. Or also, a medical provider might have a concern about the body or some, something on the anatomy that's making them concerned that it could be a trauma sequela. So the biggest category, though, is that the parents worry because of sexual behaviors. So this leads us to thinking about what are normal sexual behaviors in children? And this is a big group to ask for, for quick answers, but what are some normal sexualized behaviors in children? Nobody, silence. Okay, so things like <coughs> dropping your pants in the front yard and peeing in the grass, right, would be something that some parents perceive that as being a sexualized behavior. Or touching your private parts. And we're going to go into some more here. So what generally we mean by sexualized behaviors is that the child is doing something or saying something about private parts, essentially. This is the way parents perceive this. They're touching their private parts. They're wiggling their private parts. They're talking about private parts. And this makes the, the parent concerned. Or they're doing something that looks like sex to a parent or talking about sex. Or even vaguer, they're doing or saying something that makes the adult think about sex. So this is a very broad range of things that parents can come in saying are sexualized behaviors in their child. And often the first step is trying to figure out, are they talking about normal behaviors and are they seeing something that's not there? The, reason, the main data that we know about sexualized behaviors in children came from a couple studies by Friedrich in the 90s where he looked at two different cohorts of children under the age of 12 in the early and late 90s, and basically questioned their parents about what types of behaviors they were seeing in their children. And these were children about whom sexual abuse was not a concern. These were just regular children coming to a, to a well-child visit. And what he found is that sexualized behaviors showed an inverse relationship to age. So they tended to peak at around age five and then dropped off over the next seven years. The most frequent behaviors that they saw were touching, so self-simulation or touching. Exhibitionism, so showing, showing private parts in public. And then crossing personal boundaries. So I do a lot of teaching of the residents, and I tell them that children don't have that like bubble around themselves that kind of protects them from other people that we all kind of impose. So they are personal space invaders by their own definition. So they often will stand too close to people and look like they're like in the person's genitals because that's how tall they are. You know, so they, there's this perception though by their parents that they're crossing personal boundaries that they don't even necessarily know are there yet. You'll see that Friedrich said that they peak, these behaviors tend to peak at age five and then dropped off over the next seven years of his study period. So we all know as pediatric providers that around age five, children go to school most of the time. And that is their big social learning environment. So I would argue that a lot of these sexualized behaviors 
maybe just become private and are no longer shown in public because the, the child learns that it's not okay to touch yourself in, on the rug in kindergarten, where it, maybe it was um, accepted at home. Nancy Kellogg for the Committee on Child Abuse and Neglect in the AAP published this chart as part of her article on the evaluation of sexual behaviors in children. And I'm not gonna go over all, and all of these boxes, but you can see that things in children, touching yourself in private and then in public, um, being interested in a new peer or new sibling, trying to um, show, your, show your genitals to your peers and kind of see what they've got in their pants to kind of learn what that, what's going on, is common in younger children. Things that are less common are things like touching the genitals of, of animals or putting things inside the genitals or pain uh, behaviors that result in pain either in the child or that they're doing something to another child much younger or less developmentally able than they are are, are less normal. So this is a continuum as you can see. It is important though not to assume that because a child has sexual behavior problems means that they were sexually abused. So this is some research that came out of Hershey. Many of you may be aware of this scandal in the Penn State team several years ago which has led to a huge influx of, re of research money into um, Penn State Hershey. And so they published this study about children with sexual behavior problems. And paradoxically, they found that sexual abuse didn't appear to be related to or cause sexual behavior problems in children. And they actually found that physical abuse is more strongly related to finding sexualized behaviors or sexual behavioral problems in children, which led them to, to the conclusion that it is much more likely to be a trauma reactive behavior from some type of trauma, but not necessarily a sexual abuse type of trauma. So they warned clinicians about being careful about labeling children as perpetrators or predators because this is a symptom of what has happened to them in the past. So back to the parent's worry. The first question is going to be, is what they're telling you really a sexualized behavior or is it normal? If it is, recognizing and explaining to the parent that it may not mean that they were sexually abused. But I would argue that in your office, if you have a parent who's coming to you with a very um, real concern about sexual abuse, that likely that needs to be reported to the Department of Children and Families. Unless you feel like you can clearly say that it's a normal behavior, which you may be able to in many circumstances, or if you're finding there's another underlying cause. So they're coming in with genital redness and the mother's worried about sexual abuse and you say actually that is um, strep or something, you know, if you have some other diagnosis that you can give them that then may alleviate their worry and you don't have any other concerns. These children though should have an external genital examination in your office when a parent comes with a concern about sexual abuse and we're gonna go over how to do that. So the second thing besides a concerning behavior that a parent may become worried about is that the child has made a disclosure, that the child has said something about sexual abuse. So that the disclosure simply means what the child said, but it's very important to know what did the child say and in what context did they say it? Because we know as pediatric providers that children develop their language at different rates and it's related to their age and development. So we need to know what questions were asked that led to the disclosure. It's important to know as well that the disclosure, what the child tells you or tells people about what happened to them is the most important piece of evidence. Unlike what you may see if you watch those like Law and Order or CSI type of shows, there's very rarely rape kit evidence on children. There's very rarely medical findings or exam findings that are going to answer the question of what happened. The person who can answer the question about what happened to them is the child. But that information needs to be obtained appropriately without direct or leading questions, and that's actually harder than it sounds. And then that what the child says needs to, needs to be interpreted in, in, um, in light of the child's development and verbal ability. And we're gonna talk a bit more about that. Parents love to ask leading questions. They, of course, don't set out saying, I'm gonna ask you a leading question now, but the same way Stephanie's mom said, who touched you? Right? That's, not, that's actually not a very open-ended question. And parents who are very concerned may even go farther and say, who touched you? Did your dad touch you? Did his girlfriend touch you? Did grandpa touch you? Did uncle touch you? Until the kid says, um, yeah, it was dad. Can I go play? Like, they, they aren't understanding. 
and they may also not understand what the parent means by touched. So to a kid, a young child, touch just means touched. They're touched all the time. The parent is meaning who sexually touched you and caused your genitals to be red? You know, like, but that's not what the, ch the parent or the child is hearing. So they're answering the question that's asked of them, which is not really the question that the parent is intending. Parents may also say, who taught you that when they see a child doing something? And implying, first of all, that the child is doing something wrong and putting the child in a position to have to answer that question with some name in order to kind of get out of this questioning from the parents. Parents will get even more specific and sometimes say, did he put it in you? Which is also a challenging question for children because most young children don't have a concept that there's a place that something can go in. So stuff comes out, pee comes out, poop comes out. Young girls with, uh, don't have a concept that the vagina like, has, a, has like a, you know, a storage capacity, <laughs> you know, that there's anything that can go inside there. So they may not understand what that question means and they may um, answer it based on how much it hurt or didn't hurt. Parents may also connect dots that maybe don't really connect. So I've had children who will come, to, or parents who will come to me and they have their toddler who's resisting diaper changes, who has two or three word sentences, and the child said, daddy pee pee. And then mom is, is coming to me saying, this means that her father sexually abused her. And I'm like, well, that, there's a lot, we know that, that children leave out a lot of nouns and verbs in those sentences, and there's a lot of different ways that we could put daddy and pee-pee together that may not actually mean sexual abuse. Also, parents talk to other adults in front of children, and then the children may repeat what they're hearing or repeat that those concerns that their parents have are actually their own when they didn't have those concerns themselves. So we talked a little bit about this, about how what a child says, daddy touched me, they may just mean, daddy touched me. And also similarly, an adult may say, who hurt you? And there's a lot of different ways that children can get hurt. Their bodies can get hurt, their feelings can get hurt. And so when they answer a name, I apologize to anybody who has or is an Uncle Jimmy, that's like my standard name in these types of talks. But so I'm not, apologies to all Uncle Jimmys everywhere who are not necessarily sexually abusing their, their, um, their nieces and nephews. But children may also give you a little bit of information first. They may just say, John tickled me. And unless you ask a follow-up question, you may not recognize that that tickling was actually the beginning of some sexual abuse. They may also give a little bit of information to their parents and say something like, I don't like it when daddy locks the door and we play the private game. So that requires a follow-up question from the parent as well, saying, tell me more about that. They may also just be very specific. He put his pee-pee in my butt butt. Can I have an ice cream cone? Like they just say this information and move on and the parents are left with, what did you just say? And how do they interpret that? So the best practice, though, for obtaining a child's disclosure is actually through a structured interview called a forensic or a diagnostic interview. So these are through initially open-ended minimal facts. So what I'm getting at is that before the interview happens, whether it's the medical provider or it's DCF or it's the police, some type of information has to be gathered from the child to understand what's happening. So generally what we're hoping to get is the who, so who are we talking about, what happened, so it doesn't have to be every single detail, but at least some details, and then medically we need to know when. So when is a hard concept for most children to know in terms of they can sometimes answer was it today or yesterday, or they can relate it to a major event like it was on my birthday or it was the snowstorm day or something like that. But really, medically, we're trying to figure out, did it happen in the last couple of days? Because that impacts the medical care that they may need, and we're going to talk about that. But once that information is gathered, then the child can be referred then for a specialized forensic interview that happens through interviewers who are trained to talk about this with children. Ideally, that interview happens in a center similar to the one pictured here, where it's the interviewer and the child. And then through either a double-way mirror or a, a video link, DCF, police, 
advocates, sometimes medical personnel, are actually watching that interview happen and can get the questions that they need answered at the same time. So that way the child is having an open-ended, child-friendly type of interview where they're being questioned by one person, but, the, but all the people who need to know those answers are being able to get those answers at the same time. Here in Hartford, they're occurring now at the Klingberg Center and had previously been done at St. Francis Hospital. But they do occur in other places around the state as well. Um, so those of you who are practicing farther out in the state or are, who are listening to us remotely, they happen in other locations in addition to in Hartford. But as medical providers, you often can't wait for that to happen to know what type of next steps do you need to do medically and safety-wise for that child. So we're going to go through then how to talk to a child about sexual abuse, not as if you're a forensic interviewer, but as you are a medical provider. So the first step is to talk to the child without the parent or caregiver present, getting permission from the child and the parent to do that. That allows the child to be able to tell you and answer your questions without worrying about the mother silently sobbing or wringing her hands in the corner or without a parent interjecting questions as you're trying to gather an open-ended history from the, from the child. I would recommend that you just explain that your job is to make sure that the child's body is healthy and safe, including the whole body, even the private parts. And in our clinic, we tend to know what the family's word is, so we won't say private parts if they call it a pee-pee. Then we say we're, check, you know, we're making sure your whole body is safe, even your pee-pee. And you can start with broad questions. Again, this is a very broad overview, and you're going to tailor this to the age of the child. But are you worried about your body? And see what the child says. Usually they're like, yeah, my brother hit me with a such and such. Or like they tell you something else that's not the reason that they're there first. But they're starting to tell you any worries that they have about their body. You can get a little more narrow and say, are you worried about your private part? Are you worried about your pee-pee? You may even say, is someone else worried about your body? You know, mom brought you to see me today because she's worried. Tell me about that and let them tell you. And I you may have heard me say it already, but the one piece of, if I could have one piece you take away from the first part of this talk, it would be these words, tell me. This is a very important words to say to a child, and you can use them over and over. So you're doing the examination and you see a worrisome thing on their body or just a scrape and you wanna get them talking and you just say, tell me about that. I see this bruise on your arm, tell me about that. Or they say, I don't like having to go to visit my grandparents. Tell me about that. Just over and over saying, tell me, tell me more about that. And it, will, it lets the child know that, they, that the gates are up, that they can tell you more about that, they can explain anything that they want to, or they don't have to. But it's letting them know that you are willing and want to hear it, and, they, and, and prompting them without giving them any kinds of leading questions. If they do get, tell you something, and you need to clarify it a bit more, you can then ask some more narrow questions. And you can clarify it by questions such as, what part of John's body touched your body? So be careful about using pronouns with children because they get confused about he, she, him, her. So using the names, what part of John's body touched your body? Or similarly, what part of your body did John touch? That helping you to understand you can also ask some, some questions about when might be, did that happen one time or more than one time? And if you have a particularly talkative child, you may be able to even say, tell me about the last time that it happened. Often children can very much remember the first time it happened and the last time it happened. But if it's been happening every time that they visit with this person for the last four years, they're not going to be able to tell you the first, second, third, fourth, fifth time. But, or you can say, tell me about a time you remember best. Often by getting the last time it happened, that can help you answer that question of when something happened, and that helps to, to you know what type of medical evaluation they need. You can also say, did it happen today or a different day or something else? The other thing besides tell me is this idea of saying or something else, because children are very literal, and if you say to them, were your clothes on or off? and really their clothes were like halfway pushed down and their zipper was open, they don't know quite how to answer that question. So if you say, were your, were your clothes on or off or something else, that allows them to kind of fill in that something else um, blank and tell you more about that so you can understand what happened. 
So all of that looks long on this slide, but usually in children, we're talking about a conversation that takes probably five minutes or less, because depending on how talkative the children are and their age, we're not talking about a huge long um, conversation in your office or in the emergency room. So that's about the disclosure, and then I'm bracketing the body findings and physical symptoms into one other section here, because we're going to go over the, the medical findings, because it's all related, the parent worry and the medical provider worry. So there can be medical findings that can cause concern. So nonspecific findings, so things that are not specific but can cause either parents or medical providers to become concerned, would be like the red bottom or red genital area or a rash to the genitals, or that the child is saying it hurts when they go to the bathroom, when they pee, or they're having blood in their stool, or there's something that looks abnormal on their anatomy, which may be normal, but no one's ever looked um, or looked closely enough, or they have itchiness or some other kind of symptom. Some things that I would put in the more worrisome category is a young child who has vaginal discharge, or if they have some type of a lesion, like a wart or an ulcer that could be a sexually transmitted infection, or, of course, if they have things that look like injury, so bruising to that area, injury, or other types of injury, so which could be accidental, could be physical abuse, or could be sexual abuse, and needs to be uh, more explored. But related to that, we're now going to walk through a practical approach to a patient whose this concern has been raised. So once it's been raised, I think the biggest thing is not to panic, because I've taken a lot of phone calls from parents, from DCF, from primary care providers, from all different types of medical providers. And I think that once there's a concern been raised, I think a lot of things are going through the provider's mind, such as, I'm gonna to have to call the police. Am I gonna to have to go to court? Do I have to do a rape kit? What, is, what are the genitals supposed to look like? There's all these kinds of things. And this panic happens that kind of interferes with our normal process of processing um, any type of chief complaint. So the next thing is to gather more information. And while I mentioned talking to the child without the parent present when you need to get more information from them, it's also important initially, if you can, to talk to the parent without the child present so that anything that the parent is saying is not influencing what the child thinks or is doing. And it also allows the parent to voice their concerns openly. So if you're on the phone with them and they're calling you after hours, you can ask if they're, if they're away from their child, if they can get in a place that they're um, not in, in the earshot of their child, or you can see if you can separate them in your office so that you can talk to the parent without the child present. Because through that, you're trying to determine what type of medical evaluation is necessary and when. So you may have to get, depending on what the parent knows, you may have to get some more information from the child, specifically about kind of what happened and when, and that's those questions we already talked about. But you're also trying to figure out where and when an examination and medical evaluation should take place. In most cases of child sexual abuse, it, this is not the emergency room. I'm going to say that again. In most cases of child sexual abuse, these children should not be sent to the emergency room. Because while it is often a new disclosure or a new concern, it's often not an acute event that requires emergency room care. Most of the time, what they need is a DCF report, which we're going to talk about. But also, medically, they likely need an external genital examination, which is relatively quick and painless for the child. And I'm going to show you how to make it quick and painless for you, too, because I think it's often not, um, not well understood and scary. And then, as I mentioned, reporting to DCF is often more important than sending them to the emergency room, because DCF can, can assess the safety. We're going to talk more about that. You also have to think about the mental health of the child and the family during this crisis situation. So as I sort of mentioned, for the child, a lot of times, this is a new report of an old event or an ongoing event. This is not news to the child. It's just a big deal that they're finally telling someone about it. And a lot of times, I've seen children who are having stress, stress behaviors that once they tell their parent, their behaviors get better because they've told their big secret. But paradoxically, their parent is now a mess because now their parent knows that something's been happening to their child. So sometimes it's more the, the mental health of the family that needs to be addressed, whereas the child's mental health is actually doing pretty well, other than they're trying to manage why is their mom so upset. So those things need to be thought about as well. 
So in relationship to thinking about when and where a child should have a medical evaluation, let's just touch on a forensic evidence kit, which is more commonly called a rape kit. So I wanted to review that the purpose of a forensic evidence kit is to process the child's body as a crime scene. So it is to collect information and evidence from the child that will hopefully link a specific perpetrator to the abuse or assault. So it is swabbing for essentially in this day and age DNA or other types of evidence that will, that will link an event and a perpetrator. So it overlaps with a medical exam, but it's not the same as a medical examination. But it often falls to medical providers and should fall to medical providers to collect that information because you're not gonna have the crime scene experts from the police who process like, like the inside of a car when there's a homicide in a car. You're not gonna come and have them swab the genitals of a five-year-old. Like that is much more belongs in a medical realm but it has a very specific function. So to further that, everybody who has a concern about sexual abuse should have an examination, but not everybody needs a forensic evidence kit because the examination is to assess for injury, to assess for infection, and to evaluate for a differential diagnosis. So when I mentioned before about not panicking, I find that a lot of times once sexual abuse enters the differential diagnosis list, everything else falls off in, in people's brains and they forget that like, a child could have a UTI as well as maybe this concern about sexual abuse. So the examination is to help also evaluate for other causes of the symptoms. And it's also very reassuring to the child and the family to have a genital examination done and be told that there's nothing acutely wrong there. A forensic evidence kit, as I said, is to collect evidence from the child and it falls to a medical provider and is collected in a medical realm, but it's not really for medical evaluation and treatment. The swabs that are collected as part of a rape kit go in a box and go to the crime lab, and those results don't come back to you as the collector of that. They go to the police as part of that investigation. So it's a totally separate process from the hospital or the office practices. So a forensic evidence kit needs to be collected if there's a report or suspicion of genital contact that would leave evidence behind. It would be a whole separate talk to talk about the different time frames of, of forensic evidence collection, but generally it is within 24 hours for oral and anal penetration and 72 hours for children under 13-ish, under so pre-pubertal children, and then up to 120 hours of contact for adolescents and adults. The child and the parent must consent, so the teen or the child must assent and then there must be parental consent for the kit to be collected. Remember that the purpose is for processing a crime. So the alleged perpetrator has to be old enough to prosecute. So remember we talked about children with sexualized behavior problems and some of that involves touching of other children. So we see a lot of cases where there's an older sibling touched a younger sibling. And here at Connecticut Children's, we have decided that we're not going to recommend evidence collection if the person who is the, is the accused perpetrator is not yet 11 years old. The purpose of that is that most police departments are not going to process and, and per prosecute a 10-year-old. Um, and also that a lot of times we're looking for semen and DNA evidence, which isn't present yet at age 10. So there's not really a reason to collect that, which does not mean that it's okay that that type of sexual abuse is happening or sexual contact is happening and does not mean that the DCF and police won't get involved. It's just a, a different, that, that piece doesn't need to be collected. It's also important to recognize as a provider and to help parents understand that the purpose of a forensic evidence kit, of a rape kit, is not to find out if something happened. We'll have parents all the time who come and say, I don't know whether or not to believe her. I want you to do a rape kit and tell me if it happened. Well, it doesn't really work that way because there could be, have been very clear abuse reported from the child, but nothing on the kit. So the kit could be negative, meaning there's no evidence collected or found on that kit. And that could simply be that whatever happened didn't leave any DNA on the child 
or more commonly, that it's already washed away or been removed from the child by just normal life or showering or bathing or going to the bathroom, and that it's not there to, to collect. So a negative rape kit doesn't mean that nothing happened. And actually, in our field, a positive rape kit is so rare that we're like excited when one happens because it's, it's that rare that there's actually DNA evidence recovered. So if a child, I would argue that if a child does not need a forensic evidence kit collection, then most likely they don't need to be sent to the emergency department for that collection. They may need an urgent medical evaluation because of some type of symptoms that could indicate that they have an active injury right now or that they have some type of infection like bleeding or discharge from the genital area or anal pain or bleeding or discharge. And again, not to forget that there could be a differential diagnosis. So sometimes I've had children who suffer from constipation and in the setting of being questioned by their parents for why they're having bloody stool, they talk about sexual abuse that happened beforehand but more than likely the cause of their bloody stool is the anal fissure from their constipation and not because of sexual abuse that happened two years ago at a sleepover. So there could be, they can be linked um, to the disclosure but not necessarily the, the findings. So I would argue that a lot of times these children may be better evaluated in an outpatient setting, um, which is, I don't mean at all to sound like I am dissing the care that we, we provide for children in the emergency department. It's just that the emergency department is often a very long process for families, especially if they go to an outside emergency room and then are transferred here. So from a child's perspective, they have finally maybe made this disclosure, finally told their big secret. Their parent freaks out. They end up in the emergency room where they wait for hours and hours and then sometimes are transferred to another emergency room where they wait again. And then often then they're told, they, they have an examination done, but then they're told to follow up with the scan team, which could have been the beginning, and, and not have them go through this whole process. To the child, it feels like they're being punished for having told their, their secret, and they want to take it back by the end of the evening because they wish it hadn't happened so that they can just go home. So the reason I would say to go to the emergency room is if there's a forensic evidence kit that's needed, and if you are in the community and have options of where your patients may go, if you're dealing with a child under 13 who may need forensic evidence kit, they should go to either here, Connecticut Children's, or to the Yale Emergency Department in New Haven because those are children's emergency departments which, which are um, much more better equipped to handle this than smaller emergency rooms. Over the age of 13 tend to be lumped in with adolescent and adult and may have safe or sane nurses who respond to those emergency rooms and those providers are generally more comfortable with sexual assault than uh, in older children. We already talked about it not being in the best interest of the child or family to send a child reflexively to the emergency room without trying to figure out more information first um, to determine what urgency they need. But this is not just that, it, that we see this not only from primary care doctor's offices that are sending children to the emergency room, but the parent may scoop up everybody and go to the emergency room. Police send them to the emergency room and may stand there in the emergency room waiting for the evidence that you're never gonna give them because there's not um, a need for an evidence collection kit and um, DCF often sends the children to the emergency room as well. So we're on our side working on educating those groups as well to, to the best way to triage these children. So now you have them in your emergency room and we're just gonna go over how to do the genital examination of them. But first, reviewing that the most common finding in child sexual abuse is actually a completely normal genital examination. So the majority of the time, these are totally normal. But, so that is therefore dispelling the myth that you can tell if someone's had sex by looking at their genitals. So this is commonly held belief by police, DCF, parents and teenagers everywhere believe that you could see by looking at them if they've had sex or not. So why is that? So the, part, the reason is that those body parts are actually made to have sex. That's why they're there. So they actually can accommodate it without necessarily having any types of injury. Also, what happens to the child may not be damaging to them at all. There may be a lot of touching. 
there may be there may be penetration into the vagina into the anus into the mouth that doesn't leave any type of injury those areas are also mucosa so it's similar to the inside of your cheek and when you bite that and in a day or two it completely smooths out and heals so does that part of the body and can leave no signs at all or have completely healed and not have any type of scars. Studies have shown that in prepubertal girls um, who, about whom sex abuse has been uh, a concern, that close to 95% of the time they'll have a totally normal examination when they're examined non-acutely. So this is why I was saying the overwhelming and majority of the time the examination is not gonna make or break that did this happen type of question. And remember that these, these disclosures can be delayed for years. For acute exams, so I um, defined as being 72 hours or so of the assault, sometimes they'll occasionally have findings, but most things heal within the first 48 hours. And as we talked about, a lot of children don't report the abuse in the first 48 to 72 hours, so that's another reason why there's not findings seen. Severe injuries from child sexual abuse are very rare and can completely heal, as we've talked about. And again, that's different than the more violent kind of injurious rape of adults. So the normal examination is the most common finding, but you have to know how to do it, and you have to know what you're looking at. And there is this inappropriate mystery about female genitals. There's not a whole lot of mystery about the penis. Like, people tend to know where it is, what, it, like what parts there are. But the genitals of females are much more confusing, and we're not doing a good job with that as lay people or medical people with the terminology. So it tends to be, I have found, that for medical providers, but mostly lay people, that anything between like the umbilicus and the knees is the vagina. So that makes it challenging when, when you're talking to me and saying, I see a lesion on the vagina. That's like saying like there's a lesion in Asia, you know, like it's, it's big. So I don't know quite what we're talking about or the significance of it. And it would be similar to saying that everything from like the nose to the clavicle is the esophagus, right? Sort of, you know, it's, it's in there, but it's not really the same, the same thing. So we're going to try to help you with that a bit of, um, of anatomy. And this is just a, a picture of an examination room, but I am going to show you a couple of drawings and then a few photographs of some genitals to help you know what we're looking at. So this is from an article from JAMA published by Molly Burkhoff that showed just some techniques for examining the genitalia in prepubertal girls. So this shows this on a, on a parent's lap. Um, we often don't have to use this. We do put the child on the examination table and they do fine, but you can certainly have them on the lap in this type of a butterfly position. This is showing a technique called labial separation because you actually have to have gloved hands and open the labia or you will not see some of the external structures. And then there's traction as well, which is actually grabbing the labia and opening it a bit. Can also put the child in a flipped over knee chest position and look at them upside down. This is a little more technically challenging both for the child and the examiner. So that's like the 200 level class um, after you've figured out the 100 level class to look at them this way. So this is, an, this is from an AAP slide set. This is a really old slide and I'm not sure why they chose this girl with this filthy toenails for this, this description. <laughs> but this is, an, this is the position that we put children in. They can tolerate it. Most children are very flexible and they can sit like this. And that gives you a very good view of the, ex, of the, the genital area. But again, without doing separation of the labia or the traction to open, you won't get to see all the other external structures, which we're going to see here. And it would be nice if they came with these labels, right? But they don't. But to orient you here, so this is very much focused in view on a prepubertal child. The majora are out of the frame, so that's the part that will eventually grow hair, but those are the skin folds that are connected and close at, um, and are usually closed in that relaxed position. Then we have the minora um, up at the top here with the clitoris underneath and the urethra. But what I want you to appreciate here is that all of this tissue around the outside here is the hymen. It's the, the ring or a rim around the outside. And then the vagina is in here. So it's actually inside the vagina, the tube connecting from the hymen to the cervix is actually inside. So out here, all this external stuff is not really the vagina, any more than your lips and your gums are the esophagus. The um, other things to notice here are the perineum, which is the skin between the 
vestibule here, the, the vaginal opening and the anus, and the posterior foreshad, and there's another area called the fossa navicularis, which is like the divot behind the posterior foreshad. So when we do see findings from child sexual abuse or from penetrating injury to the vagina, where is it? So this is a different child, but again, the labia majora are out of the photo, the urethra is here, all of this tissue around the outside is the hymen. This is anterior vaginal tissue that is just floppy, so it's just kind of laying into the opening. But down here, underneath here, behind the vagina, through the vagina will be the cervix. But we describe this like as if it's a face of a clock, so with 12 o'clock at the urethra and 6 o'clock towards the anus. And between 9 and 3 o'clock, the anterior portion, there can be all kinds of shapes and sizes of the hymen. The hymen is something that was present during embryology and covered the whole opening and then involutes and leaves behind a remnant. So what it leaves behind varies from child to child and is always present between 3 and 9 o'clock, but can be variable between 9 and 3. So anteriorly can have normal anatomic variability that we don't worry about. But posteriorly, if there's abnormalities there, those can be significant and be in indicative of some type of previous trauma there. So there can be bleeding or bruising or loss of tissue, or there may be a lack of hymenal tissue or scarring along the hymenal rim. Didn't spend too much time here with the anus, but close to 99% of children who allege anal penetration will have normal exams. And scars there are very rare. The anus is engineered to let out some pretty big stuff on a pretty regular basis, so it can allow things to go inside and not necessarily leave any type of scars. This is one quick picture. This looks, this looks bloody in here. Sorry, that's the color balance. It's just the, the, um, un, it's just the mucosa change inside, but what I'm showing you here is just the normal stellate pattern around the anus. So the examination steps are to get the history Make sure you have the parent or supporting adult in the room for the exam if the child wishes it, as well as a medical chaperone. Examine the rest of the body. Have the child lie on her back on the table or on the lap of the caregiver. You can do a frog leg or a cannonball for a boy and a girl. Make sure you're wearing gloves for that. Explain what you're looking at and you can reassure the child, but also let the family and child know that a normal exam doesn't mean that nothing happened to the child. So you saying the exam is normal doesn't mean I don't believe you or that I don't take your concerns seriously. So to wrap us up here, I just wanted to go over this, the roles of the SCAN, DCF, and police. So DCF, Department of Children and Families, is actually not, not their goal is not to put children into foster care, which is what a lot of people fear. They're actually to, to strengthen families, but their goal is to really ensure the safety of the child. They're trying to figure out, is the child unsafe in that situation, and what do they need to do to make them safe? The police are trying to figure out if a crime has been committed and hold the perpetrator accountable for that crime. So they have a different level of evidence that they need, because they need to, be, to say that something happened to the child and be able to link it to a specific person, whereas DCF just needs to say that something was unsafe in that home. SCAN is the medical evaluation of children. We specialize in the medical evaluation of children and in communicating the significance of the medical findings to police and DCF. So we spend a lot of time explaining things to police and DCF. So you're all mandated reporters, and by reporting to DCF, you fulfill your mandated reporter role. But calling SCAN is not the same as calling DCF. And so you can't call us instead of reporting it to DCF. And those of you who have called us have heard us say to you, and now you need to report it to DCF. So you, you refer to it by calling our office. I know that the system is moving towards a lot of faxed or um, epic ability to, to refer to subspecialties. Currently, we don't have that up and running because we need to talk to you first to make sure that all of these safety issues have been addressed and as opposed to getting a fax on our machine of maybe a child is unsafe and DCF hasn't been contacted. So we'd ask you to call our office and we're on call um, at night as well. So for the purpose of um, time, I'm going to just sorry, skip over briefly what happens at the SCAN program, which is that we do all the things we just told you about. Um, but also, I just do want to let you know that there are medical providers in Connecticut that are doing specialized medical examinations in their communities, and they're supported by us or by the Yale team. So sometimes if you're coming, calling us from an outside emergency room or from outside of the Hartford area, we may say that the follow-up will happen in your area and not necessarily with us. 
So I wanted to get back to our cases. So remember we had Stephanie, who's the four-year-old, um, who's at the four-year-old well-child visit, and mom said, who touched you? And she was touching herself. So what do you guys think now? Did Stephanie make a disclosure of sexual abuse? And what should you do differently? I'm not expecting any of you to answer now. But so the so I don't think it's clear if what Stephanie said was actually a disclosure of sexual abuse or not, because her mom had some kind of non-specific concerns, the redness in her genitals and the touching herself, both of which can be totally normal in a four-year-old. And the answers of her saying daddy when asked the question of who touched you may not be a sexual abuse disclosure. I think that DC, in this case, DCF and police are already involved with this child. I don't think you necessarily need to question Stephanie further because she hasn't really made a disclosure. I think that doing a, a head to toe, including a genital examination of her is appropriate, as well as if DCF has not already referred her to our clinic, then you can call us and we could see her as well. Then we have Juan and Edward, who are the two cousins, um, who there was some potential touching as well as Juan reporting sexual abuse in the past, and that they were told to go to the emergency room. So did Juan and Edward need to go to the emergency room? And, but now that they're there, what type of medical evaluation do they need? So I would argue that three days later, Juan and Edward really didn't need to go to the emergency room. And, but it is very common that when parents call their primary care doctor's offices, they get sent to the emergency room. I don't know if that's the office staff that's doing that or if that's getting to the providers and the providers are saying, no, send them to the emergency room. But now that they're in the emergency room, they need head to toe examinations, including genital examinations. The older boy who had suffered the sexual abuse, who's also now a teen, may wish to have sexually transmitted infection testing. But I would also um, say that these children need to be reported to the Department of Children and Families because they can investigate both the concern about Juan being sexually abused in the past and also address the concerns about the safety in the home between these two children um, and work on that with the family as well. And these children would also likely from our emergency room be um, scheduled to follow up with the SCAN team. And then lastly, probably the most concerning for me of the three of my case examples here was Kaylee, who's making these, on, these um, specific reports to her mother and lives in the home with the alleged perpetrator. So there's medical and safety concerns for Kaylee. So she lives in the home, so she may have, there may be forensic evidence, kit, forensic evidence to collect on a kid, so she may need the, to go to the emergency room if there's been concern about recent sexual abuse in the last 72 hours, but also more importantly, there's concerns that she needs, DCF needs to be contacted because she needs a safety plan right away because she lives with this person and she is unsafe right now. So that's actually more important or as important as the emergency room. So uh, we will have a sexual, suspected child sexual abuse clinical pathway. I do not expect you to read this. I was showing you that this and all those little yellow bubbles are the draft um, comments that we're working on, but we hope to have this ironed out for you by the end uh, and, and ready to go by the end of this calendar year so that you can start using it in, in the emergency rooms and in the offices. And then I have some educational resources online as well as a list of my references. Sorry for my timing and thanks very much for your attention.